Each year, more than 12 million people will hear the same three devastating words. You have cancer. I'm Lee Silverstein, a survivor of pediatric kidney cancer and stage four colon cancer. My amazing wife, Linda, has taught me that we have cancer because every one of us is affected by it in some way. Survivors, family, friends, and medical and support team members. And we all have a story worth telling. Welcome to We Have Cancer. Welcome to episode 136 of We Have Cancer. Thank you so much for joining me. A little personal update before we get to this week's guest. As our listeners know, 2019 was quite a challenging year on the health front for me. The surprise news that my cancer had returned earlier this year with metastases to my liver and uh, went through six months of chemotherapy, followed by uh, ablation to my liver and got the good news end of July that the first post-procedure scan looked good. And we recently had our next follow-up, our two-month follow-up after that, and got the news earlier this month that there was no evidence of active disease again. So two good scans in a row. And I'll be back at the Moffitt Cancer Center in 2020 for my next check. But we're so thrilled to get that good news that no evidence of active disease at this time. So really grateful and thankful for that. My guest this week is Dr. Jamie Aiden, and Jamie is a five-year colorectal cancer survivor. He is also an ostomate, and he's done a lot of work with Fight CRC, and his role, his profession, he is a disaster psychologist, and the way Jamie described it was, when people are running away from disasters, he is running towards the disasters to provide help and support to those affected by some really, really challenging circumstances. And one of the things we covered in our conversation is how he applied that learning to his own disease and and managing through that. So join me now for my conversation with Dr. Jamie Aiden. Jamie Aiden, welcome to We Have Cancer. I really appreciate you making the time. Listen, I wanted to jump right in because I, I saw something that you referenced online that just so spoke to me. And you talked about the experience that so many of us who've been touched by cancer or really any major life challenge have experienced. And that is when friends and family who we expect to be by our side through thick and thin suddenly, for lack of a better word, vanish. And I don't think there's a person I've interviewed on this show that hasn't shared a similar story. Talk about what you what you learned about that situation and why you feel that happens. You know, I, I think there's a number of reasons that it probably happens and varies in, from person to person. But in my case, the research that I do as a disaster psychologist is the kind of the lens that I've used to, to make sense of why I think that was happening. You know, one of the things that I was involved in, if you think back to the Ebola outbreak when it first came to the U.S., our institute that I direct, we noticed a lot of people kind of panicking, a lot of anxiety that was happening. And we did a study. And what we found was that our findings confirmed this idea that's called terror management theory. And it has nothing to do with terrorism, but rather it's a social psychology idea that we all want to avoid anxiety in our life. And that when we think of, and are faced with our own mortality, 
that it really raises our anxiety, especially questions about, you know, the big questions of life and meaning, these sorts of things. And one of the things that I realized was after I started getting better, a dear friend of mine ended up having stage four cancer and I hadn't seen him for a while. And I realized that I had actually been avoiding him. I wasn't aware of it at the time until we ran into one another. And I'm sad to say that I didn't hardly recognize him because the cancer had affected him so deeply. And I remember just having this sense of fear that kind of you know shot through my body in that moment. And that's when I realized that one of the reasons why I had pulled away was because I was trying to avoid a lot of the fears and stresses that I've had and gone through with cancer. And I think that's a reason why a lot of people also pull away because they don't know what to do to help or they're, it's a t- troubling for them. And do you have thoughts on how those who are dealing with their challenge should handle that? Lots of times there's a sense of loss because, you know, someone close to you isn't there anymore or anger for the same reason. What are your thoughts there? You know, I think when that happens, because I also had that occur to me pretty early on, you know, I had a really good close friend of mine that after I broke the news to him, I probably didn't hear from him for almost a year or more. And that was only after I had reached back out. And I was really surprised by that. And then I also even had friends on Facebook and just some other connections that, you know, unliked and stopped, you know, connecting on, on social media, even that just kind of isolated themselves from me. And for me, I found myself of having very little energy, you know, already feeling pretty emotionally drained. And so I kind of had to prioritize of what relationships were worth pursuing and what ones was I okay, but if they dropped off and to rechannel energy elsewhere. So I, I don't think there's a one size fits all, but to kind of look at what are the resources that we have in our relationships and to try to choose those wisely and approach them with what uh, you need to do to get your needs met. Fair enough. You know, you mentioned in your new book, A Walking Disaster, one of the things you touched on that also caught my attention was you alluded to that when we need, when we feel we need help the least is when we need it the most. What do you mean by that? Where does that come from? You know, for me, it comes from a big part of how I'm wired as a person and even a lot of my own identity professionally. You know, I'm oftentimes the person when something bad happens, I'm the one that goes in. And professionally, that's true as well. You know, I literally go all over the the globe helping after major disasters or civil conflicts and mass traumas, mass shootings. And so when everybody else is getting out of those situations, I'm going into those situations. And, And so when I was diagnosed, it was really hard for me to go from being the helper to the helpee. And I found myself wanting to pull away and not wanting to, to put that, what I thought initially was a burden on others, which later I realized wasn't. And by being willing to eventually learn how to share struggles and the wounds that I had, that it allowed me to actually draw closer to the people in my lives. What was the switch that made you realize that it wasn't a burden? It was kind of, there was a kind of two pieces to it. I think the very first one was when I had a colleague come visit me when I was at home on medical leave. And he was just asking, you know, how I was doing. Was there anything I needed help with or I was struggling with? And I shared with him that the part that I was struggling with most was accepting help from others. And he wisely reminded me that we're all the type of people that need help. And that really helped to kind of open my eyes to, you know, I wouldn't look down from someone that I've been helping and I don't have to worry about others doing that to me. 
So how did that change how you approached things as you move forward? Well, as, as I moved forward, then it was learning to have to say that I needed help and to make my, my needs met to others. One of the things that my family ended up doing shortly after that conversation was using a uh, online platform, uh, Lots of Helping Hands, I believe is the name of it, and used that to really kind of lay out you know, all the different things that I needed assistance with, you know, like driving back and forth to chemotherapy treatments. And in fact, there was one day where we were working on that plan and I was saying, oh, I don't need rides. I'm going to be fine. And then as I'm walking away, I walk right into the wall and almost fall over (laughs) because I was so weak already. You know, so it was, there were also lots of these kind of humbling moments that made me become more self-aware that it was something I needed. Another observation that I've seen that has been shared on the show previously as well is that, you know, not to be sexist, but typically men have a harder time asking for help than women and speaking up. Has that been your experience? Yeah, you know, I I think like when I, because I reflected to try to understand, like, where did some of that resistance, you know, it's kind of ironic that I'm a professional helper, yet I don't want others to help me, right? And so I was trying to figure out where that came from. And one of the things that I realized was that I I grew up in this very small rural farming community of about a thousand people. You know, after I moved away, about 10 years later, they eventually got a little red blinking light over the one four-way stop, (laughs) you know? So, so, so like, that's the the community that I grew up in. And, you know, so it was this very kind of blue collar, very strong work ethic. And, you know, my dad actually, you know, you hear the phrase of pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Well, my dad actually started every single day of his job before he went out into the fields of starting by pulling his shoes on his boots by the straps. And and so I think I had kind of had some of that type of mentality ingrained in me and, and realized that I needed to start rethinking about what is strength, what is weakness. And even, you know, just like one example, I remember Early on, I was getting frustrated at myself because I was having to rest and nap so much. And I kept telling friends that I hate this. I just feel like I'm not doing anything. And then finally, I started actually writing down naps on my to-do list and started referring to them as active resting. <laughs> so I kind of had to learn to, to, to turn things around. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm big about to-do lists. So I guess if it's on your to-do list, you also feel less guilty, right? Right, right. How did growing up in such a small town in that, as you said, you know, blue-collar environment impact not just your work, but, you know, your your view of the world and, and how you approach every day? You know, I think one of the ways that it really had an impact on me was the importance of community. You know, I, there were times growing up, I, there was this one instance when I was in high school and a friend of mine, it had been snowing and we lived out, people were oftentimes going off the side of the roads on the ice and it just happened to be a friend of mine had apparently gone off into a ditch and she came to school that day late. And when she saw me in the hallway, she said that your grandfather pulled me out with his tractor this morning or I wouldn't have been able to get to school. And my grandfather, at this point, he was retired. And whenever there was a bad snowstorm, he would on the front porch that was enclosed and watch because, I mean, you you could see everywhere for about a two to three mile radius direction to direction because it was just flat. And at that point, you know, the cornfields were all down. So you could see, you know, long distance on the road. And if somebody went off the road, then he would go get his, you know, 1960 orange (laughs) Alice Chalmer tractor, you know, that was still going despite all the rust. 
get his car hard on and go out there and pull people out and help. And that's just how everyone did everything, that there wasn't a lot of you know professional services there in that area at the time. And so you really had to help one another. And so that sense of community just became so important and was definitely a huge part of my own cancer journey. Did that also impact your decision to get into the line of work that you're in? Yeah, you know, it was one of those things that I'd always been fascinated by human behavior. But to be honest, I'm doing probably the last thing I ever thought I would be doing in life. So I actually had hoped to be a music major when I left my my small town. And once I got to college, I realized I'm not good enough to play professionally and I'm not cut out to be a band director. So I kind of went through this like mini crisis there of not knowing what I was going to do with my life and ended up having a a professor that had started getting me into some different readings of philosophy and different things and really kind of helped foster my love of jazz and just kind of through those conversations started becoming more aware of the things that I really valued and that I found important and realized that I'd been wired to want to help other people and that I had seen those issues growing up but I didn't recognize them and so now I wanted to be equipped to help others that may not have the services. Tell us more because I certainly was not familiar with the title disaster psychologist. So explain for our listeners what exactly that is. Well, so the way that I got into this work is after finishing my uh, doctorate in counseling psychology, I moved down to South Mississippi just six days before Hurricane Katrina hit. So moved in, Katrina hits our community. And I get involved within weeks on helping to provide care in the community, doing training, doing research. And what I ended up, I thought was maybe just going to be a a part or kind of a blimp in my career, ended up being the focus, it turns out, of my career. And so I've spent the last 14 years now dedicating my work doing uh, disaster mental health work. So when there's a major disaster of whatever kind, you show up and what is it that you you attempt to do for the community so just a a couple examples one was not too long ago not far from where i live actually just about 30 minutes away there was a mass shooting in aurora illinois at a factory and there was a group that had gathered at a community organization that had gotten together to have a vigil shortly after that event and all of a sudden the leaders of that vigil realized they weren't prepared for the amount of trauma that was being expressed by the people that were there. And so I had been out and just picked up a pizza to bring home to my family and to have some some family time that Saturday evening. And I get a phone call from this community leader and like, hey, are you the disaster guy? And I'm like, I'm not sure what you mean, but who the disaster guy is, but I am somebody that does disaster work. Who are you? Tell me more who you're looking for. And they're like, nope, you're the person. And they said, can you be here in about an hour? And so I dropped everything and went straight there. And one of the things that one of the leaders invited me to do was to come up and just provide some basic information about, you know, normalizing what people were going through, helping them to become more aware of resources. And then I stayed around afterwards to be able to provide psychological first aid to those who needed it and make referrals for those that might need more in-depth counseling. So you've experienced something like Katrina that impacted millions of people and you've experienced stage four cancer that impacted 
you and of course your you know your family and your friends what are the similarities well i think in both cases whether it's a mass disaster or you know i actually oftentimes now talk about or think about my experience of cancer as a personal disaster and when i think through those i think one of the biggest similarities is that they both can really turn our, our life and our, our world and the way we see the world upside down and that it can oftentimes leave us in a period of, of shock cause a lot of significant emotional stress but there were a couple of differences though that i also became aware of one was like after katrina everybody evacuates people lose cell phone access some neighbors never move back so your network of support is completely disrupted whereas even though there was some disruption like what we talked about where like some friends pulled away or now I no longer could go out. So, you know, I kind of became a hermit for a period when I was on bed rest and things. So, you know, it did disrupt my network, but in a different way. But then another experience that I found that was different was as soon as Katrina passed over the community that I lived in, everyone afterwards was a survivor. With cancer, you know, when I was going through my, my treatments, it felt like I was having a hurricane hovering over me you know, for that entire period of treatment. And still today, you know, there's times where uh, metaphorically, you know, the, it feels like the clouds are changing colors, the wind is picking up, and I'm trying to figure out, is it just because I didn't sleep well, or is that, you know, a tightness in my back, is that a tumor, or is that just a knot back there? You know, you have those moments that uh, come and go. And so, you know, when Katrina happened, I was able to actually hop in my car and evacuate. But when cancer struck, you know, the, it struck, that disaster struck inside and there was no getting away from it. Yeah. Interesting. So what's the status of your health right now? I'm really pleased to be able to share that I'm at the five-year no evidence of disease mark. Congratulations. That's fantastic. That's the highlight of this conversation. Yeah. So I I feel really, really grateful for that. Uh, I'm sure. Be sure to stick around to the end of this episode to learn how you can get your rear in gear. How did you come to be diagnosed? So I was 35 at the time, and I had had actually a year before that some symptoms of like just discomfort in my stomach and in my pelvic area and just wasn't feeling quite right and was oftentimes feeling very lethargic. And I thought, well, it's just because of that phase of life, you know, I was at that time I had my, all three of my daughters were pretty young and I was busy in my career as well. And, and so just thinking, oh, it just must be normal, you know, approaching middle age tiredness here. And, but it, it continued to persist. So I went to my doctor to, to check in with him and he sent me to a specialist and shared my symptoms with the specialist. And you know, he said, well, based on your age and the symptoms, He's like, I don't think it's anything to be concerned about. I think you just need to have more fiber in your diet. And he said, so if the fiber doesn't work, come back and see me if you have more symptoms. Well, the symptoms largely went away. And it wasn't until about a year later, they came back in a very significant way. And at that point, my physician was like, nope, you're immediately going to the hospital. We're having testing done right now. And that's when they discovered that I had a tumor in my colon. And then further testing revealed that it had spread to my pelvis area and where I had a mass. And what was the treatment that they prescribed for you? Well, after getting my diagnosis, then they moved me very quickly into treatment. And I ended up doing oral chemotherapy twice a day for the summer. And then I also was doing radiation five days a week for that summer. 
And then as soon as I completed those, had a, a brief break, you know, to kind of give my body a little bit of time to try to regain some strength and then had a major surgery, a September time period and ended up having a permanent colostomy and then, you know, removing the tumor and mass and then lymph nodes. And then that also had a, had a port put in at the time. And I thought that that was the worst of it for me. And, you know, was bedridden for about a month afterwards, really kind of struggled after the surgery. And then was finally able to get out of the house and going to one of my doctor's appointments for a checkup. And I thought I was done with treatment. And that's when my oncologist broke the news that based on his most recent conversation with the tumor board, that they were going to recommend an additional six months of drip chemotherapy. And so I went into that, but I also went into it dragging my, my feet a little bit. So I, I remember telling him that if he wants me to do this, that he's going to have to show me the, the research, you know, show me the outcome data, that this is what I need to do. And uh, his nurse sent me like a link to a website. And I, I said, no, that's not good enough. I actually just finished a book a while back on evidence-based practices. I actually want to see outcome data or better, or better yet, a meta-analysis, mm -hmm. a study of studies. Sure. And so after some, some time back and forth, he actually provided me a study. I felt convinced, but then he said, next time you come in, you bring me a study on psychosocial coping. And so that's kind of how our relationship went from there. Wow. How, what was your reaction to that? I, I appreciated it. So it, because it also helped me recognize that he was trying to understand, because I shared with him that, you know, at the end of the day, my resistance more than anything was a psychological resistance to it, because I didn't think that I could emotionally make it through another six months of treatment with how I was feeling at the time. And so I, I actually appreciated that. And, and I felt like, well, if I'm going to make him bring in research studies, all's fair. So. All's fair. <laughs> 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 and what what did he do or what do you think he did with that information? Well, you know, there were some times that there was once where he actually used it on me, you know, where he had checked like a reference or something and he came back to, to, to let me know that that was a bit outdated and that there was a new study done with some VA participants where they had a different type of outcome. So I was like, all right, this is this is good stuff. Sounds like you found yourself a really good doctor. <laughs> yeah, it was it was good. So I know you've been involved with uh, Fight CRC and, and online communities, and I don't think a day goes by because I'm involved in all of them, you know, whether, you know, Facebook, Instagram, wherever they may be, where our natural inclination and those who, you know, love and support us say things like, you know, cancer's not going to get me and you got mm -hmm. this and all of this. And of course, it's understandable with positivity, but it was, I found it really interesting that you referenced in your book and it said something about to find hope, be cautious of optimism. Mm -hmm. Explain that. Yeah. So it, this topic that you're bringing up right here was a really major struggle for me. You know, my, my friends and family joke that I'm pathologically optimistic as a person. Yeah. <laughs> I even had a couple of years ago, I, I was doing an interview trying to get some research out and, and tips out to, to help people through the media on how to cope with, um, it was the, I think it was the Baton Rouge um, flood a couple of years back. And I was talking to this reporter and we end up, you know, finishing up the interview and she's like, 
you know, for somebody who does disaster work and sits around all day thinking about worst case scenarios, you sure sound awfully cheerful and optimistic, you know? And so, so I, I tend to be wound as a, a very positive person. And one of the things though, that I experienced was that sometimes that optimism wasn't really reflecting the true state of how things were going or how I was even doing, whether it was emotionally or physically, that I, I wanted things to be good, but they weren't. And it re had reminded me, there was a study that we had done here at our institute. You may remember a few years back, there was this mining accident in West Virginia and ended up being one of the, the most deadly loss of life at a mining accident in the last couple of decades. And one of the things that we found in our, our study was that the families were gathered nearby where the, the men and the workers had been trapped. And there was this sense of struggle of wanting to be hopeful that everyone was going to come out alive. And as time passed, you started seeing some people struggling to embrace the reality of what was about to happen and what their life was going to be like. And so for those that clung overly optimistic, they missed out on being in the moment with their family and friends. You know, so for example, it's, I've also seen this early in my career as a psychologist where I could remember doing work with uh, families where maybe a loved one had a, a chronic health issue and didn't have much time left to live. And rather than saying goodbye, clung on to this optimism that wasn't necessarily healthy to the point of saying that, no, this is not what's going to occur and never got to say goodbye. And, and, and so for me, that was this constant wrestling of trying to figure out how to balance that hope and reality and optimism. You know, just like, for instance, one of my daughters had asked me when I would, when I got better, will I play uh, tackle football with her? <laughs> and <laughs> And it was one of those things, like my inclination was to say, yes, let's play tackle football. Dad's going to get better. But instead to have to talk to you know my young daughter, I mean, this was really hard, but to tell her, you know, if I get better and I'm going to do everything I can and I'm getting good treatment, let me know the date, but I promise to do what I can, but I can't promise that we'll actually get to do it. And, you know, so it's managing those difficulties of the situations we find ourselves in. How old was she at the time and how did she respond to that? She would have been around, it would have been about eight years old. And what was her reaction? Her, her reaction was that she actually got up and marked a date on the calendar. <laughs> and she chose a date for when she knew that I was supposed to be done, past the time that I was supposed to be done with treatments because she felt like that would give us the best odds that, you know, that uh, we were getting closer to that date and that I would hopefully be able to play even if it wasn't very good. She sounds like a special young lady. She is. Did you play football? We played football. So right. I, I, as, even as you're talking about it, I, I can still picture it. So yeah, it was a very special moment. And then we had a giant water balloon fight in the backyard with the kids afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> So sticking with this topic about optimism, what advice do you have for people in a similar situation? And look, I'm there too. I'm stage four and 
I feel the same way, you know, that you want to tell everybody everything's good and I'm fine. What do you recommend that how people respond in that situation? You know, I, I think it varies so much from really moment to moment in some ways that I, I don't have a prescription that, that I would, would recommend per se. You know, I, I think there are times where one of the things that I've tried to get better at in my life is sometimes life sucks. Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes it hurts. And it's okay when that occurs. And it's okay to feel sad about it. It's okay to, to have grief. It's okay to be angry about it. But if we allow those feelings to totally consume us for too long, if we allow ourselves to stay in those spots emotionally, then it's, we're going to miss out on the life that we may still have. You know, so I did a lot of research early on and still do in my career on resilience. And, you know, people oftentimes talk about the, that as a concept of, well, it's like taking a beach ball and putting it underwater and it bounces back, right? And I'm not sure what your experience has been like, Lee, but, you know, for, for me, there was no bouncing. Even, you know, when I, so I was fortunate enough to, to finish treatment, but it still took a good seven, nine months before I just started to get back to what had been kind of a baseline for me physically and intellectually in particular. I really struggled with a lot of kind of fog cognitively. And at the same time, I realized, well, it doesn't mean that I'm weak that I haven't bounced back. And I started doing some research and discovered the, the virtue of adversity called you know, fortitude. You know, it's a term that we use. But as I started looking at how it's been used historically, that it's oftentimes thought of our ability to kind of metabolize suffering, to endure long suffering, and, and to have perseverance. You know, so that really is something I've tried to embrace in my life because I oftentimes think of resilience as bouncing back to get back to life. But one of the things cancer taught me is that even when maybe we feel deflated and there's no bouncing happening, we can still learn to, to live even in the pain. We, we don't have to be outside of the pain to still be able to live our lives. Speaking of that type of work, tell us more about what you do with the Humanitarian Disaster Foundation. Yeah, so here at the Institute, we end up doing a lot of, we one, we have a master's program where we train students in humanitarian and disaster leadership. So our students are going out into the world working for nonprofits and government agencies like FEMA, nonprofit groups like Red Cross, doing work out there in the field. And then our institute, we also do a lot of training where we'll sometimes deploy into a disaster zone to be able to provide trauma training to communities or organizations that may be in need of assistance. And then we also do a, a lot of research where we're trying to really learn best practices and then also do a lot of consulting with groups, including government agencies, to, to help improve community responses to disasters. And where's the Institute located? We're here in the Chicago area in Wheaton, Illinois. Oh, terrific. Okay. At Wheaton College. So you're often exposed to really challenging and traumatic situations. Where do you and the folks you work with go to kind of heal from the your experience you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation where people are running away from a disaster you're the ones that are walking into that disaster but that's got to leave some sort of an impact on you and the folks you work with absolutely i mean i think that's something that you have to be really mindful of and 
I heard a colleague one time who said that as people were much more like Velcro than Teflon, you know, and that sometimes these over time things start to kind of stick to us, especially when we're in these difficult kind of emotional situations or high stress situations. And so for me, one of the things I've really tried to do, it kind of goes back to that, um, you know, that struggle of being the helpy. So I've also had to learn, especially now on the other side of treatments, like I still have major significant side effects that are chronic and likely permanent. And I have to really listen to my body and, and know my limitations that I need times to give myself permission to rest. And I also try to be checking in with friends and family and, and coworkers on a regular basis too. And also try to, you know, I, I try to find something that makes me laugh on every single day, even in the disaster zone, just something, you know, at the end of the day that can relieve some tension. It's amazing work that you're doing. It really is. And, and I'm in awe of someone who is able to, like you said, walk into the fire when others are, are running from it. So just hats off to you for the kind of work that you do. The last thing I wanted to touch on with you is what the, the, the phrase that came to mind as you're talking about this is PTSD. Oh, uh -huh. And I've heard people use that term to describe their experience with their cancer. Is that a thing? Is that, you know, do you see a correlation there? Oh, absolutely. I actually had my very first doctoral student that I ever mentored did his dissertation on trauma among cancer survivors and that he was able to show that for some people that it will actually lead to PTSD or, or traumatic symptoms. And it was probably about probably about three months or four months after I had my major surgery. And there was this one evening I was getting around for bed and in, in the bathroom. And as I'm leaned over the sink, getting ready to start brushing my teeth, all of a sudden I had this invasive thought and memory that came over where I was suddenly back in the doctor's consulting office, having a test done and remembering the pain that I had experienced, you know, it was almost like it was happening all over again. And I realized that as I, after that occurred, that that was a kind of a traumatic flashback that I had experienced. And it was the first time I'd ever had that type of an intrusive traumatic thought before. And so it helped me to start to understand the things that people go through in a much more personal way. And, and so the other thing that I've noticed even over time, like I've been aware even for some individuals, myself included, that trauma is, can have a very strong physiological component to it, that our bodies remember the trauma. And, and so I've noticed, for instance, in my own experience that I'm more prone to kind of kick into fight or flight mode, you know, where I, in the past, I've always been, you know, considered like to a fault of being too laid back. And over the last several years, I've learned that if something happens, I can be triggered much more quickly to get angry and realizing that my body is just physiologically kind of wound tighter than what I used to be and learning to cope with that or also being aware that there's triggers that will happen, you know, of things that may bring back a, a difficult feeling or a memory. And, you know, it can be everything from, you know, a scent to seeing something. You know, and just, you know, kind of an example with that, like one that I was really caught off guard by was I finally, I only got my port removed this past April. 
I had kept it in because every year I kept getting hospitalized for different complications. And when I went in, the doctor said, oh, you know, we're, I thought he was going to like put me out. And he's like, no, 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 you're going to stay awake. We're just going to numb the area. And then all of a sudden I could hear, you know, that this noise. And I was like, what is this noise that I'm hearing? And he's like, what are you talking about? And he like stops. And I was like, I don't know. The noise stopped. And then he's like, I don't hear it. He's like, so let me go back to the procedure. And I start hearing it. It just sounds like it's being amplified. And it's simply him just making a small insertion in my chest area. And I was surprised by how the sound was triggering for me as a trauma experience. And in fact, I, I just wrote about that a couple months ago in uh, Cancer Today about that experience. Wow. I will have a link not only to that article on our website, but also a link to your, your book and where people can find you online. Jamie, I really appreciate you making the time to join us on the show. And you know, thank you for that. And, and thank you for all the amazing work you're doing to help people and communities around the world. Thanks so much, Lee. You have a good evening. There are two Get Your Ear and Gear events left for 2019. Coming up on Saturday, November 9th in Orange County is their 5K run walk that is taking place at Miles Square Regional Park at the Forest Shelter. And then on the following Saturday, November 16th, for all of our friends in Houston, Texas, their Get Your Rear and Gear event is taking place at Baylor College of Medicine, the McNair campus. Those are the remaining two events, and we'll pick it back up again in February of 2020. Those are your Get Your Rear and Gear events coming up for 2019. Thank you for listening to We Have Cancer, and thank you to our sponsor, the Colon Cancer Coalition, for your support. You can subscribe to We Have Cancer by visiting Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, or Spotify. And you can find us on social media by visiting our Facebook page at We Have Cancer Show and at We Have Cancer Pod on both Instagram and Twitter. We Have Cancer is a proud supporter of Genie's Blue Angels, providing financial support to those affected by colorectal cancer.